It needs a voice though because you can't hear it. I mean, you can't see it. It won't switch. To the screen won't switch to you. Look at my stars. Shannon, that's, oh. <laughs> that's so good. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> uh, while, you're, while you're doing that, I'm going to start the show. Um, thank you so much for listening to The Geek and the Scribe. The Geek and the Scribe is a podcast hosted by Shayna and Jamara, critiquing pop culture, fandom, and literature. Our blackness is the lens through which we see the world, and our gender is how we experience it. This is the manifesto of two sisters who are unapologetically black women interested in discussing, critiquing, and celebrating culture in a world that prefers us to remain silent. Thank you for listening to The Geek and the Scribe. My name is Jamara, and I am your scribe. And my name is Shana, and I am your geek. Shana, is that, have you drawn a face on your hand? This is not a face on a hand. It is merely a face. Oh my gosh, you're so weird. <laughs> so on today's show, we are discussing, we are discussing one of our favorite movies, and one of my favorite books, um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit is um, the story is essentially about a down-on-his-luck private eye named Eddie Valiant, played by Bob Hoskins, who gets hired by cartoon producer R.K. Maroon, played by Alan Tilburn, to investigate an adultery scandal involving Jessica Rabbit, um, whose voice uh, is done by Kathleen Turner, uh, Jessica Rabbit, the sultry wife of Maroon's biggest star, Roger Rabbit, voice played by Charles Flesher. Flesher. But when Marvin Acme, uh, Jessica's alleged paramour and the owner of Toontown, is found murdered, the villainous Judge Doom vows to catch and destroy Roger. And Judge Doom is is played by Christopher Lloyd. So that's the that's the summary of the plot. What else can I? I'm like. The movie was released in 1988, and it is one of the very few movies that features cartoons and, I guess, human actors uh, in the in the same film, which made it uh, incredibly different and interesting. So that's the high the high summary of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, it's a fair summary. I mean, that's the setup. <laughs> Yes, that is the set of Shada. Where do you want to, where do you want to take us in terms of themes? Well, as Who Frame Roger Rabbit was probably one of our favorite movies growing up. And really only in my adult years was I made aware that there was a book version. Decided but well, we decided that it would be fun to read it. But reading the book version has made us want to look back at the movie and the themes that are, well, the themes therein. Right. So the themes that are in both the movie and the book, right? Yes. Okay. Awesome. Mm. 
Okay. What, what are the yeah, themes? You know? What are the themes? Yeah, you want me to say what the themes are? <laughs> yes. Unless, unless you're just hoping that we can read them through your mind silently. Yes. Oh, oh, okay. You can't say anything. We can't touch the screen and like osmosis it out. Okay. Okay. Moving on then. Well, to the major. Well, Two of the major themes in um, Hugh Fred and Roger Rabbit, though not subversively, which got not, blah, I'm stumbling on my words. What's not overtly said, but is gathered in subtext, is a storyline of, raci- of racism, and I guess segregation would also be a fair thing to say. Um, the twos are very much second-class citizens. They are not treated the same way as the human characters in the story. And even though it's not something that they say outright, but it's something that they hit to all the time. Like when Roger beseeches Eddie for help, and he's like, there's no justice in Toontown anymore because the twos live under an oppressive system that... It was formed to keep them in check. And that, again, not one of those first things that people think of. It is a real clear um, theme in there. And one of the cool, but one of the cooler themes, actually, that's not kind of a downer, um, it's actually the, um, is sexual um, expectation. And especially sexual expectation of women, especially what they look like, which is really played out well by Jessica. But to um, bookend that nicely, you have the relationship that she has with Roger, where it doesn't have any of that expectation. Right. So it's um, definitely, I mean, looking at Let's, let's let's start let's start there and come back to the idea of the tunes as second class citizens. So the love relationship between between Jessica Rabbit and Roger Rabbit is is really an interesting theme because even the characters in the movie um, question it. Right, no one can really figure out why he's with her and why she's with him. And then there's a point in the movie where um, I think is it. Is it Eddie Valiant's uh, kind of pseudo girlfriend asks like, "What do you see in him?" Or someone asks like, "What do you see with him?" And her her response is just simply, "He makes me laugh." Yeah, Eddie says they ask Jessica. He's like, "What do you see in him?" And she's like, and she says that. And and you know what? It, it is to say something that maybe Roger just brought something that other people didn't. He appealed to her in a way that other people didn't try to. And, right. Yeah, and there's something in both intellectual and intimate about making somebody laugh. It says a lot about one knowing what kind of sense of humor a person has, and how well you know them that you know their sense of humor enough to consistently make them laugh. Right. Exactly. And there's something interesting about Jessica Rabbit's personal agency because she, you know, there's the famous line where she says, you know, like. It's hard being a girl like 
who looks like me, you know what I mean? And she's like, you know, like I'm she's like, I was just drawn this way. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn this way. Right. And so she just has these very dramatic (laughs) moments where she's she's acknowledging, hey, there's a way that you look at me, and that may or may not be how I see myself, or it may or may not be how I define actually what I need. So anyway, that's yeah, like, and that's, it's funny because there's a, another scene in the movie that actually speaks a lot to perspective in that situation when Eddie's in the Ink and Paint Club and he's talking to Betty Boop. And he, he first sees Jessica and he goes, she's married to Jessica Rabbit? And Betty Boop says, yeah, what a lucky girl. See, in Betty Boop's perspective in that moment, it was Jessica who got lucky because her probably opinion was more that Roger is a really great guy. That's why Jessica's lucky to have him more so than values that Eddie was bringing in that moment, whereas he's looking at what he deems as a very beautiful woman. So why would she be with a goofy guy? Right, exactly. So, I mean, again, another uh, interior versus exterior, uh, what people assume that Jessica needs and what they assume Roger would need, you know, versus uh, these two who are clearly um, in love, clearly protecting each other, and clearly have each other's back throughout the whole movie. Yeah, uh, even, even even when Jessica has to essentially knock Roger out, yeah. And Eddie's like, "Well, why'd you do that?" And she's like, "I had to knock him out to keep him from getting hurt." She's like, "So you didn't get hurt? What do you like? What's wrong with your logic?" But right, exactly. <laughs> and you gotta wonder if if the reason why Jessica and Roger work is because perhaps they see the truest value of each other or the truest version of what they see themselves as. Shana, can you talk a little bit about film noir? Um, this this uh, uh, Who Made Roger Rabbit was one of the most expensive films ever made. And it's also a classic example of film noir. Uh, so I wanted to know if you could comment a little bit about that. Um, I mean, well, film noir is a um, well, genre of film. Um, usually there it's those classic detective stories where you see an alcoholic detective down on his luck and some dangerous femme fatale comes to his door and offers him a job he can't refuse. Um, movies like the Maltese Falcon really um, made the genre very popular. Um, and with it, of course, Humphrey Bogart also made the genre very popular film-wise. Um, it's funny enough, you don't see them as often or not. Film noir as a um, genre is parodied a lot. Like um, lots of TV shows like to do like a detective story, and they usually do it in this particular genre. Yeah, I, I love a good detective story. As I was watching, yeah, no, those I, are super cool. I forgot just how funny this film is, and it you know of course they they. They play off of a lot of the classic acme gags and and 
and comedy, you know, and, and just yeah, no. silliness, even from uh, what is the name, the baby's name? Baby um, Herman. Baby Herman, who in the cartoon, you know, in the cartoon, in the cartoon, plays this little baby girl. And then as soon as it cuts, he's like this this angry, disgruntled man with this deep, deep voice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's like, funny. He's the ultimate um, man in a child's body. Right. And there's there's the opening scene. Well, I mean, so there's also a lot of things that happen in this, this film that, that are kind of like, eh. I mean, in the opening scene, it's um, Baby Herman with his mom and then um, Roger Rabbit. And she makes a comment like, like get it together, or you're gonna go back to the to the science lab or something to that effect. Science, yeah, the science lab where they, you know, referring experiment. to you know, where they experiment on animals. Um, so I was just like, this movie. Um, but then you know, it, then it so it cuts from like the very dark to like the very silly. So that they have to cut because Roger can't. Um, do the right images floating around his head after he gets hit. You know, they I think they want stars and he has birds or, or yeah. something like that. Yes, I remember. You know, that was one of the scenes I always remembered really well. And he was like, you want stars? I can give you stars. Look, look, look. Oh my gosh. Every time he hit yeah. himself in the head, it was something else. There were like birds and bells and flashing circles. I mean, there's so much, uh, the, the tunes in Toontown, they just feel very, they feel almost like slaves. A little. Oh, is, that, is that too strong? You know what? And, and I wonder if this was intentional or not, but that makes a huge nod to the old studio system. Like mm-hmm. the studio system back in the day worked that way. Like they owned the actors, like, they owned everything about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did what they were told when they were told, like, no matter what. Yeah. And it's crazy. So the, yeah. there's there's some real-life correlations. Yeah, no, there's definitely some real-life correlations. And, I mean, it seems like the tunes are, they only, essentially only exist for for human entertainment. They're, they're according from the human perspective, uh, the human actor perspective, they they have they have no uh, emotional depth. They have no ability to critically think. They can't supposedly can't operate, you know, on their own. Um, they always need to be saved by a human, right? As if they they can't get themselves out of trouble. Um, they are they are at the whim of. Um, What's the song that that Doom knocks on the in the bar? Oh, shaven, shaven haircut. Yeah, so they're like at the whim, like no tune can resist uh, that that melody. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's actually pretty degrading because because Roger is such a fully developed character with a strong emotional palette, with uh, the ability to love, with you know mission driven to make others laugh and and to obviously not murder people <laughs> yeah uh, so it's you know i mean i have so much empathy for roger and and i also have so much empathy for for jessica just their their emotional depth and perspective 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, one, and funny enough, one of the main characters we actually haven't talked about at all, um, which is Eddie Valiant. And it's funny that he represents something very interesting to me. And I didn't quite grasp what that was um, earlier, but as I grew up, Eddie Valiant, like, kind of, in a way, represents the loss of innocence, if you want to use that word. I don't know if I want to use that word. Um, but think about it. He was this once happy-go-lucky guy. And what they show you in, by the way, bravo on the cinematography and the attention to detail for the props department, for me, essentially telling Eddie's life story in the items on his brother's desk. And they do a really good pan of it in the movie. And, like, I feel so the need to highlight this one scene. This scene essentially highlights, tells you everything you needed to know about Eddie and why he was so broken at the beginning of the story. Um, like, clearly, it shows you that their father was a clown for Ringling Brothers. That's where they get their silly streak from, that they joined the police force and they were considered the clowns on the street. Um what you call it, even in their um, police class, the um, their policeman's photo, they're wearing um, clown noses, and they show when they go out on their own, they start their own detective agency, and that shows you more than anything what a, probably a vibrant human being he was before the terrible, you know, dropping of a piano on his brother's head. <laughs> um, and why that broke? Because the very thing that he it, at least in this story that he loved hanging around Toontown, yakking it up with the tunes and just being a big old clown but still helping people with his awesome detective skills. So it was all kind of taken away from him in a really um, terrible, terrible moment. And it's like, what does that say about when we, when, when the dreams that we have inevitably hurt us or the path in life we take hurt us and how we have to be able to rally back and you know, because by the end of it, Eddie starts to get back his more vibrant, sillier persona. He's still a little more grizzled than he was before because he still went through what he went through. But, man, you get to see him kind of turn a corner where he's like, OK, I'm going to get past this stuff and get some of that back. Right. Yeah, no, definitely uh, Eddie evolves. Uh, his, like he's like the Grinch. His heart grows two sizes, you know. Uh, by the end of the movie, uh, I mean, he, you know, we we meet him as an alcoholic private investigator, right? Like, our so, standards, right? So, like the level of dark that that he's he's going through is extreme. Um, I don't know if you knew this, Shana, but uh, so. Bob Hoskins plays Eddie Valiant, and he actually um, wasn't the first choice for this role. Uh, he was, Spielberg, yeah. yeah, Spielberg actually wanted uh, Harrison Ford, but his, he was too expensive. And then they also considered Bill Murray for the role, but uh, he already had other other offers on the table, so he missed out. And they also considered Eddie Murphy. Um, oh, good lord! I'm yeah, so they, glad that didn't happen. They wanted Eddie Murphy <laughs> at some point, and then Eddie Murphy actually turned it down, and then later regretted it. No, no, that's uh, probably a good choice on his part. 
like even Eddie Murphy back then, and Eddie Murphy back then was a cool movie star. Like when he was still doing the Beverly Hills Cop movies, that was great. Um, I don't see how that would have translated well in this particular, not only just the genre, but the type of humor that they were going for. I just, it, it reminds me of the kind of movies he does now. And it's just like, mm. yeah. yeah. So, apparently, apparently there was a good business story, though, for Bill Murray missing it. He apparently threw a fit when he realized that was the movie he passed on. Oh, well. <laughs> like, I don't think, because, again, the name of the movie changed a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wonder if he got the script under a different name and then later found it. Like, I could have done this. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, you snooze, you lose. Uh, so so one choice that I'm, I'm so happy that they, they did make was... Uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom. Oh man, was he not spectacularly creepy? Or I read, I read online that he purposely didn't not he never blinked during filming just so they could get the character correct. Yeah, that was the craziest fact that I ever heard. I was like, wait, me too. For every take, you never blinked. Your eyes must have been itchy. <laughs> like how bad do you think he wanted to like scratch his eyes like or maybe he's just maybe he just has an ability not to blink I don't know Christopher Walken is mad not Christopher Walken Christopher Lloyd is magical Christopher Walken is magical too but we're talking about Christopher Lloyd like there's <laughs> like I feel like there's just certain people to to me there's nobody else like them and there's nobody who replace them and they're just kind of magic like when they're there and, and it's funny no matter what it is no matter what it is that they're in, they always bring something really cool to the table. It's like you put Christopher Walken in the scene, it's going to be awesome. You put Christopher Lloyd in the scene, it's probably going to be awesome. It doesn't matter what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the level of sinister that Christopher Lloyd brings to this role um, oh. judge is is incredible. Uh I, I mean, I just love Christopher Lloyd and like, just for life, like just just for life in general. No, um, he's, but then, he's fantastic. Yeah, but then for this role, I mean, it's even even down to the moment where we actually find out. And obviously, there are going to be spoilers. This movie came out decades ago, so it's like almost thirty years. Right. Understand. So if you're listening and you can't handle the spoiler, you just need to get your life together. Um, where we find out that Judge Doom Doom is actually a tune, uh, you know, like, and you see the high voice, and obviously there's the body change, and um, it, it all starts to make sense. Uh, he he's just he's just phenomenal uh, in this role. So I, I was really happy. As a matter of fact, it made me want to do a show on the villain as a as a theme. Um, where we just kind of run through our favorite villains. So maybe maybe that's coming up in the future. Yeah. Like, no, he's by far one of the scariest villains of my childhood. There is something very unpleasant. One, when they roll when they run him over with the steamroller, traumatized me. Two, when he got back up after it went over him, traumatized me some more. And then when he admitted that he was the one who killed Eddie's brother. 
that traumatized me again. And it, it was legitimately scary in a suspenseful moment in my like eight-year-old life. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of, ugh, yeah, it's hard. You because know, but, like, really, and you kill his brother? Like, yeah. And, like, Eddie's been walking around all hurt all this time, thinking mm-hmm. that it was a, like, you know what I mean? And I which, guess, which makes sense. it wasn't good. But just not the right tune. Which makes sense, though, now you realize from the beginning of the movie, they foreshadowed that. They were like, they, when Eddie asked who Judge Doom was, and his old lieutenant was like, he, um, like, how did he get elected? And he was like, well, he spread some, essentially, he bought the election. And the guy who killed Eddie's brother, they were chasing him post a bank robbery. So that's where he got the money to buy the election. Mm-hmm. It's like it all goes together. Did you read? Did you? Yeah, it all goes together. Yeah, Shana. Did you read online about the real world parallels where um, the so the, at the end there's the big reveal that Judge Doom wants to create this. It's really funny. This transportation system called a freeway way where people get on and off all day. And they're He's like, by God, it'll be beautiful. And there'll be cheap hotels and uh, gas stations all along the route. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, but apparently there was a, a real world parallel um, in terms of uh, transportation scandal uh that happened um in the early 1920s with general motors i believe anyway so it's kind of funny that it, i mean in 2016 it's kind of funny that that's even yeah. a scandal well, like a okay like, who said roger what year is it supposed to be uh 1940s yeah it's set in 1947 los angeles Okay, so we are all aware, right, that a freeway existed at that point. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, it's weird. Like, what do you mean there's no road past Toontown? Like, there's no road. Like, so the world ends where Toontown starts? Like, kind of. Does two towns sit in the middle of the U.S. and you can't get to the other side? Like, you have to travel around the world the other way to get to, like, California from Boston? Because, what does that mean? There's no road past Toontown. Like, where is Toontown? <laughs> yeah. There's just no road, Shana. I don't know why that's hard for you. No, no, no. Explain. You explain right now. I'll wait. There's no road. There's no road. There's nowhere to go. So the human world ends when you get to Toontown. So it's half the planet, like, two? So I assume that, that humans, I mean, they never really talk about where tunes come from. I assume the tunes are are created by by man, right? I don't, they don't say. I mean, maybe this I is don't something. say if they're like born, I don't know. No, I think, I think they're created. I think that that's my theory, that tunes are created and that this idea of creating a freeway is like some sort of like manifest destiny, you know, 
spreading and taking over the West. So the tunes are now the Native Americans is what you're saying. I mean, kind of, only though. Oh, there are some... There are some unpleasant parallels. Think about it. Like after the like the essential conquering of the Native Americans, um, it, after that whole manifest destiny crap, they started to like capture like some of the older braves and put them in those Wild West shows as entertainment. Oh, wow, that's deep. Yeah, so I mean, I guess so. But that's that's what I thought. That's fucked up. It was fucked up. Um, yeah. Well, America's fucked up. And, and then we're wondering why we're taking Jackson off the bill. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Look, not a lot to be proud of. Um, so, and and wrapping up, uh, what are you, what are your your kind of last thoughts about Who Framed Who Framed Roger Rabbit? It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And if you haven't watched it, you should watch it. And if you have kids, you should have them watch it. If you don't have kids, find some kids and make them watch it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, All right. So I guess my takeaway on Who Framed Roger Rabbit is that it is a, a classic a classic movie that one, it's easy to watch. It's fun to watch. It's a quick watch. It's something that you can kind of pick up and digest. Um, but there's so much more to it than being a movie that has cartoons and, and human actors in it. And there's a lot to be appreciated. And it's definitely a look into the past around kind of how fucked up um, our sensibilities were in terms of uh, definitely cartoons and violence and, and exploitation um, and then um, it's hard not to fall in love with Roger Rabbit and, and really believe in laughter as a, as a healing mechanism and as a community building tool and strategy so hey Roger hey Roger so did you start the book yes I started the book and seems the me in the book that they're hinting that tunes are born. Oh really? So there's yeah. some controversy there uh, between. So there's a huge difference between the book and the the screen. And actually, there was there were some some lawsuits around royalties uh, where the the you know they were saying that they should have received more royalties from the book since the movie is based on the book. But um, I think they've actually lost in court. It's because because it's very loosely based on the book. It's really only seems to me so far, only based on the book in the sense of where the names came from of the main characters. That seems to be about it. Because, of course, there's a Jessica Rabbit and a Roger and a um, Valiant and such in there. Um, there's no Marvin Acme to what I understand um, I don't even know if Arkeem Maroon is in it I haven't come across him yet well we're going to keep reading the book um, it's important to enjoy book film and literature 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 and just for a reference the book is actually called Who Censored Roger Rabbit 
And that has a lot to do with the fact that, um, unlike in the movies, tunes can't speak. Um, they speak in thought bubbles that appear above their heads. Oh. So that has a lot to do with the book title. Yeah, that. Okay, awesome. All right, well, I think, Shannon, I think we're done. We're done <laughs> chatting about March Rabbit. Um, we want to thank our listeners uh, for listening in to The Geek and the Scribe. The Geek and the Scribe is a podcast where we talk about things that we like and then tie in things that we think are important uh, around gender, race, and a million other things. So, my name is Jamara, and I am your scribe. And I'm Shane, and I'm your geek. And thank you so much for listening to The Geek and the Scribe. Toodles. Bye-bye.